at the beginning of Nephi's great dream of the tree of life and the vision that follows, the Spirit asked him an interesting question. Knowest thou the condescension of God? To a 6th century B.C. Jew, that's an interesting question. He knows Jehovah. He knows the God that parted the Red Sea. He knows the one that provided them with manna. He knows very little about a God who would come down and live among us. The angel will go on to show him the condescension of God and the healing power that would come as he dies for the sins of the world. He will also show him the condescension of mankind, shouting and scoffing from the great and spacious building. Join us today as we look closely at that dream in 1 Nephi 11 and what that means to us today in our own particular healing. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed here do not constitute official pronouncements of the church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. Let's go ahead and, uh, and begin. Now, one of the things I'm finding, um, kind of, one of the things about the scriptures and one of the things about the Book of Mormon is each time that we read scripture, we're reading from a different vantage point of things that are going on in our life and additional growth and knowledge and maturity and understanding. So one of those things that the scriptures does for us is that we're looking at it through a, a, almost like a prism from a different angle based on where we are in our lives. Does that make sense? Which is really fascinating. Uh, Cindy and I were kind of reflecting on this the other day. and We've talked about it. Isn't it interesting that if, if Isaiah uh, has a problem, and Isaiah then prays for inspiration. The Spirit speaks to Isaiah. Isaiah then writes it down. That, that scripture from Isaiah is then going to be interpreted by Lehi in his experience and his knowledge, and he will respond to that. And then Nephi comes along and abridges what his dad wrote from Isaiah based on his experience and his knowledge and understanding. And later on we get Alma looking at Nephi's stuff of Lehi's stuff of Isaiah. And then it's going to run through Mormon who's going to look at Alma's stuff, who's going to look at uh, Nephi's stuff of Lehi's stuff of Isaiah and, the, and what was going on. But that's based on what's going on with Mormon. And then Moroni is going to do the same thing for his dad. 
And then it's going to get buried up. And then thousands of years later, then we've got Joseph Smith interpreting what Mormon said, uh, speaking about Alma and then Nephi and then Lehi. And the, you know, all based, so sometimes scripture is, is there, but if we want to carve it in stone, do so at a little bit of our peril, simply because it, it changes a bit based on the prophet looking at it and our own experience reading it and then our own experience reading it 10 years from now. And it may mean one thing to President Nelson, and it needs another thing to us, and then 10 years from us it needs. So, so rather than say, this is the definitive answer of what this text means, we need to recognize all of the things that come together and how changeable what looks like carved in stone scripture is, is not as carved in stone as we think it is. D does that make sense? What we're about to look at, what we're looking at here, here's my challenge, I guess, is I'm looking at 1 Nephi 11, is we could spend the rest of the semester on 1 Nephi 11. There's way too much, and especially if you're looking at 1 Nephi 8, Lehi's dream of the tree of life, and then 1 Nephi 11, uh, Nephi's vision of the tree of life of what his father saw according to the spirit and then looking ahead in the future and things he's looking at things in the future he has no idea what he's looking at and he's just simply trying to write it down okay so what we're going to do today is kind of we're going to spend we're what eight classes in we're going to spend the whole thing in first nephi 11 <laughs> we're not even getting out of there Simply because there's just too much richness there. Now, will we always spend an entire class on one chapter? If we were going to do that with the Book of Mormon, six years from now we'd be somewhere in Alma. <laughs> so we can't do that. But today we're going to take a look at in, in depth at 1 Nephi uh, 11. And we're going to talk about the descending God. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Okay. So, I tried to I tried to put all of this. This should be much easier to read. Had to move the projector back a little bit, but that should be easier. Cindy, how's it look from back there? It it looks good. Okay, thank you. She's always been saying it's too small. I can't read it back there. So, so this is Cindy version here. Okay, now. As we look at this, 1 Nephi 11, and, and the Spirit is talking to Nephi, and, and we talked a little bit about how the Spirit was going to introduce him to all this, but I want to start with this question. Look at the one that comes in 16. And again, you've read this over and over and over. Knowest thou the condescension of God? Now, stop for a second. Um, Put that in modern, if you were going to say that, uh, Sister Jones, if you were going to say that in your own language, in today's language, how would you, how would you say that, Jerry? Kind of a, a weird thing, right? I don't like the word well, we're going to talk about, there's two different kinds of condescension, and, that, that, and so I'm, you're, you're picking up on that. But in this case, President, you're... Maybe... Uh kind enough to work with us or something like that? Knowest thou the 
condescension, and, and I think it kind of gets interpreted in that, yeah? So I this is him saying, asking the question, do you know how low the Lord is willing to go to reach down and get you and pull you up? D does that make sense? Do you know, do you, do you have any idea how low the Lord went? Now, think about this for a sec. Remember, part of what unlocks some of what we're going to see in here is that we have to see it, even though so much of this applies to us and our, and our lives, and we're going to see it naturally through our context. But we've got to look at this through Nephi's eyes. We've got to look at this through Lehi's eyes. The Spirit is talking to a 6th century B.C. Jew. And he's saying to a Jew, do you have any idea how low the Lord is going to go? Now, his, his idea of, of God would be who? Jehovah. Yahuwah, right? Yahweh. How far would, in their view, how far would that God go? Well, he loves us. He cares about us. You know, he parted the Red Sea. He provided manna. He wants, he wants them to be his people. But I don't know if that necessarily lends itself to condescension. How low would, would he be willing to go? I don't like that idea of how low. Con means whip. Yes. Descent simply means to come down. He can, it's like coming off of a How mountain. far will he come down? Yeah, we come down off the mountain, you know. And that's where we go, up to the mountain. Yeah. So, I don't see that there's any uh, to talk about, and this is probably more me than anything else. Yeah, yeah. The idea of low, it just sounds like, you know, you're sorry, you know, you're yeah. you know, a turd at the bottom of the ocean, you know. It's not. <laughs> it's not that great. Not that, that, not that great. Okay? So, and, and see, for Nephi, you might have been well, what do you mean condescension? What do you mean? Because, again, we're going to talk about condescension of man <laughs> in a second. Yeah. It's condescension has an interesting word here, but it's coming through Joseph Smith's mind and whether, whether Nephi actually used this word or whether the spirit actually word used this word, it certainly came through Joseph Smith's mind as condescension with a certain set of meanings. And for the spirit, the spirit has a very specific moment when he's going to talk about the condescension of God because he's going to use this word twice. Now, it, it's, it's kind of fun how he sets this up. He's going to say, do you know how far God will descend? Uh, and, 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 of course, Nephi is going to go, uh, nope. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Yahweh is not really seen as one who comes down among us. Yeah. He, he stays there. He takes care of us. He sends angels. He sends prophets. He doesn't come himself. And the angel's going to go, ah, wait till you see. Because there's a moment that is going to be the quintessential condescension of God according to the Spirit and Nephi. And it's coming up. Okay? It's not here yet. Do you know the condescension of God? Nope, I don't. I know that he loveth 
his children, nevertheless, I don't know the meaning of all things, and I certainly don't know. There's nothing in my experience that would suggest understanding the condescension of God. Don't know that. Okay? So, Spirit says, let me set the table for you. Here it comes. Ready for this? All right. Okay? Now, to, but to emphasize, I need you to see something, and I made a I made a note above the verse here so that you can see that. He's going to show him the virgin. He's going to say, And he said unto me, Behold the virgin thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. Okay, that's not what the first writing, the 1830 version of the Book of Mormon said. Joseph Smith changed it in 1837. What he originally got and what Oliver Cowdery originally wrote in this verse, and we know now because we have the printer's copy, so we know what was originally said, okay? This verse originally said, He said unto me, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of God. The mother of the God you're thinking about. In other words, there is more of a sense of not the mother of the Son of God. What he's hearing originally is, you see this virgin. Yeah, she's beautiful. Well, well she's the mother of God. Wow. I didn't, he may not have known up to that moment that God had a mother. You mean Yahweh? You mean Jehovah? Yeah, this is the mother of God. You can see Nephi kind of going, <laughs> mind blown. Okay. Now, Joseph, because he wanted to make sure that there was some understanding on this, he's going to add in the 1837 version of this. He's going to add son of. And, but, but this is actually repeated three times, also in verse 21 and verse 32. Always it's going to say the mother of God. So it really is. He needed him to really understand. When I talk about the condescension of God, that God will come down among you. He will be Yahshua. God is with us. That's not just by, in the spirit. He's going to say physically he's going to be here, which would have been an incredible concept that he was hearing from his dad. Lehi also started to understand that. But these are first century, th these are these sixth century Jews trying to understand, and this is so how far to the, outside the box. Okay? For us, we look at it and we go, of course, yeah, we, we understand that part. Okay? Now, so he's going to say, so he's going to see this, uh, he's going to see all of this, he's going to say, yep, oh, that. Uh, she carried away in the spirit. He sees a virgin, and she's bearing a child in her arms. We could spend a lot of time on that particular image, because that image is all over the Mediterranean of Artemis holding a baby, of uh, um, anyway, female gods holding babies. That's an image that, that would be out there. Okay, now, but we get these images, and here, so here comes another one. I beheld. Uh, the virgin bearing a child in her arms. And then look at verse 21. And the angel said unto me, but if I do this, that will stop. The angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God. 
Well, if we're talking about a God who would come down and be among us, the Lamb of God. Now, to Nephi and to Lehi, the Lamb of God, or a lamb, what's the first image that comes up in your mind? Sacrifice. Sacrifice, and specifically maybe which one? Besides the ones done at the temple. The Lamb of God. Where's the first lamb that really jumps out at us in the Old Testament? Abraham. Abraham. And the, and the Lamb of God that would be the ram, okay? But this is the lamb that's going to be sacrificed. Now you start thinking, he's going to be called the Lamb of God. Now, as I put it here, the term Lamb of God is used 27 times in the Book of Mormon, but only twice in the Bible, in, Re in the Book of Revelations. The Lamb of God is something that is specific here to the Book of Mormon. And, and, and Nephi, in his dream, is going to talk a lot about the Lamb of God. This Lamb, this Lamb that in their context, a Lamb would mean sacrifice. Knowest thou the condescension of God, that God will come down, not just come down and be among us, but he will be sacrificed. Now do you know the condescension of God? Wow. Yeah. So Kevin, at that point, did me finally understand not only would it be a sacrifice, but an atoning sacrifice for them, or they just thought it was going to be... We're, get, we're getting there. Because the, the Spirit's going to explain it to him. I, so you, you're not going to miss this. And he's going to say, because we still haven't gotten yet to what the Spirit said is the condescension of God. When he says, behold the condescension of God. Here's the, here's the moment. You go, really? Okay. Yeah. One thing that my mind, when I read this, even clear back on my mission, the first thing I always think of is, DNC 122, where Christ himself is, you know, Joseph Smith hadn't even experienced that yet, and then he's crying out to the Lord, and, and Jesus goes through all these scenarios that he yeah. could have, and might, Son of Man has descended below well, all these. greater than he. Yeah. So that kind of puts it in perspective, but we still don't know, we never probably will know, what he really suffered. Yeah, he has some hints of it in, in, 19, in uh, DNC 19 you know, what he suffered, okay? But uh, the angel said, okay, do you know, behold the Lamb of God, even the, and again, this is another one of those places. This, this verse originally said, the angel said unto me, behold the Lamb of God, the Eternal Father. This God that you worship will come down. Now do you know the meaning of the tree? Wow, okay, so this is sitting, the Jehovah I worship is going to come down. So then he said, now do you know the meaning of the tree? Oh, dang. Wow, the tree is him, right? And I answered it, yeah, oh, wow, it's the love of God. He's coming down here, which sheddeth itself, interesting word, sheddeth, <laughs> you know, itself abroad, 
in the hearts of the children of men. Therefore, it's the most desirable. It tastes better. Okay? Yeah. I, I just want to address the word condescending. Yeah. Because I think for most of us, it has a highly negative connotation. I know. And I think that's because it's generally used as an accusation against somebody who is arrogant. Okay. Telling somebody else, oh, just let me come down to your... Okay. Hold, hold on. Hold on. S sit up. Hold, 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 hold. <laughs> sit on that. We're not there yet. It's coming at the end of the chapter. No, we don't. <laughs> there is the, the, the word condescend. There is a condescension of God, and there is a condescension of men or people in a particular place raining down condescension on somebody else. And it's coming. We're not there yet. So, stove it. <laughs> For a second. And then you can go later. <laughs> I got you. And it is. We're on the same wavelength. Okay? Okay? Um, yeah, and he's going to say, so this thing is going to, he's going to come, he's among us. Uh, okay, so exactly what's he going to be doing when he gets here? Okay, well, he's going to, he's shedding forth, uh, and it's most desirable, it's joyous to the soul. And then, by the way, oh look, now he's going to see this moment when I, I, he said to me, look, and I beheld the Son of God going forth among the children of men, and just from like his dad's dream, right? I saw many that did what? Fall down and worship him. Those that had followed the rod and got to the tree and did what? Fall down. And they're worshiping. They're worshiping at the tree versus those who tasted the fruit and then went for the building. Yeah. Ross? For my simple mind, go back a little bit. God, they worship it? Yes. Are they thinking in their mind, Heavenly Father God, or are they thinking Jesus? Is Heavenly Father God, right? By, by the time it had got to that, that century, remember, they had started with, without getting too detailed, all the way back to Noah and stuff like that, we now know from other sources that was, there was a God, El, right. and, and his wife, Asherah, and then they had a son, Jehovah, Yahweh. But by the time we get to this period of time, it's just Yahweh. It is the one God. They've got one God, really, that they're worshiping. That, that, that is just together. Yeah. Yeah, but, the, but he's, being, he's going to be, this is going to be explained in. The Lamb of God then says, oh, wait a minute, there's, if I had any doubts about this. And so, but so they're thinking in their mind that this. This is the God. Embodied. The embodiment of, yeah. And, and again, it also for them, that would mean, wait a minute, the God who separated the Red Sea is the one who's going to come down and be among us. And he's now being born. And, and I'm, seeing, I'm seeing Jehovah as a baby. Now, you want to talk about, you want to be six months old again? You want to have diaper rash? <laughs> You want to have colic? <laughs> you want to have to sit in a dirty diaper? I mean, all of the things that come with being born is just awful. You know, 
And isn't that great? <laughs> Sometimes our amnesia about how things were when we were, you know, six months old, and that's helpful. Um, all right, so, so he's watching people fall down on feet and worship, and then he's going to see the rod. Now he's going to understand, oh, wait, this rod of iron, this word was leading to that tree and the waters and stuff like that. And then, okay, so here's the moment. So now, so now the table is set. Remember, the angel said, do you know the condescension of God? Well, no. <laughs> I know he loves us, but no. Okay. He's being born. Wow. Wow. Really? Okay, that's amazing. Okay, then the Spirit says, now let me show you the condescension of God. Here's the moment. And the vision opens up. And what does he see? And some, it might be different than what we think. Look what he says is the moment. Now behold the condescension of God, of the, of the Lamb of God. And it is? 27. Behold the condescension of God. And I looked and beheld the Redeemer of the world. He's getting it, right? Of whom my father had spoken. And I beheld who? John. That's why I say it's different than what you might think. When he says, let me, the embodiment of the condescension of God comes right now. And he sees John the Baptist. I beheld the prophet who should prepare the way before him. According to the words of who? Isaiah. It's Isaiah 41. Make, he, make his way straight. Okay? I beheld the prophet who should prepare the way before him and the Lamb of God, this one who would be sacrificed. Went forth and was baptized of him. I don't think that's, I don't think baptize is a word that he would have used, by the way. He would have gone through the mikvah, mikvahot, the, the, the traditional washing. Baptism is a Greek, is, baptismo is, is a Greek word. So I don't know what, and, and that, by the way, they weren't like baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in the River Jordan. You know, John Baptist wasn't doing that. He was the repentance with coming coming unto God and then being cleansed as a ritual uh, mikvahot uh, cleansing in preparation to follow the prophet who was coming, the Lamb of God. When Fred was baptized of him and after he was washed, I beheld the heavens open and the Holy Ghost came down out of heaven and ab abide upon him in the form of a dove. Well, ding, stop. You're a, you're, you are a Jew in the 6th century. What does a dove mean to you? Where do, where, do you where, where do you remember a dove? Noah. 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 That's right. It's about Noah. And because that symbol was there, that the world was now going to be... And the dove being sent out and the dove coming back with the little twig said the world is about to be saved. The dove was a sign of a Messiah to come, and they understood that. The dove, when they saw a dove, we look at it and go, wow, that's neat, a dove, peace, stuff like that. Oh, no, not to, not to those Jews. This is, this is Messiah. 
oh my gosh, he's coming to save the world. That's what we're waiting for, okay? Uh, it seems to me they would have been thinking about the temple ordinances and the sacrifices rather than Noah. We, we, that was the symbol for the least uh, financially stable individuals to come and... In, in, in first century Judaism, it was. We don't know what the sacrifices were like completely. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking about the law of Moses and how he outlined that, the That's right. And that, and that dove becomes then part of that, doesn't it? Yeah. The, but the dove also, the, the fact that they're sacrificing there, then that also goes back to Noah. So it did mean something, even in the law of Moses. If you're going to have a sacrifice of a dove or two turtle doves, you know, if you're really poor, stuff like that, think about that. It's saying this is actually a symbol of a sacrifice of a Messiah to come. They, they knew that. The dove, dove meant to a lot, okay? We get these symbols in this, in this chapter that are just so rich, so incredibly rich. And, and the Lamb of God and, a, and coming down in the form of a dove. Uh, and, and I put it here. The sign of the dove was a recognized symbol in Israel dating back to Noah. It was also a symbol of peace and had been used in the law of Moses and a promise of a new land. A visual sign of a dove would have been the understood sign to John's followers that Jesus was the promised Messiah John had been heralding. Okay? So, big deal. And, and, and uh, he, is, he is seeing this uh, dove. Now, but before we move on, let, let's look at that, that idea of uh, condescension. I was trying to come, if, if, God is, if, if Jesus was the great exemplar, and somehow we are to be condescending, and hold on, Brother Colton, we're getting there. But we are to be condescending and descend the way that Jesus did. What words would you use instead of condescending to say that you are descending somehow? Humble. Humble. Synonyms. Humble. It's a sacrifice. Willing to sacrifice. If we're going to be like him... When you have kids and you bring them into a family, you sacrifice them. A lot. Reach down and bring them up and raise them up and help them become independent adults that are successful. Yeah. And that's a total condescension. It is. You're going to have to, you have to sacrifice your money, women, you sacrifice your bodies. There is. There's a lot involved there. What am I worried about? I always think walking in the other shoes. Yeah. Now, if... When, when I was thinking about this, th th think about when we get ready to take the sacrament, we are invited, if we're preparing ourselves for the sacrament, what kind of place are we supposed to be in? We're supposed to have a broken heart and a contrite, con condes con condescending, coming down. We're, we're, instead of putting ourselves up here, we're putting ourselves down here. A broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, the best thing that I could come up with, and this is just my own look at it, and you could look at it a hundred different ways. One of the things that I saw in condescension and contrite was also teachable. Am I at that moment 
teachable. Can the Spirit teach me? Willing to learn and change. Willing to learn and change. Okay, now, here's the question. If, was Jesus contrite? Yes. 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 Was he willing to learn? Did he learn? Yes. Did he learn? No, he yes. Or did he know everything, or did he learn? So we have a, wow, part of the condescension is I'm willing to come and learn, which means Jesus was coming and learning things he didn't know. That's, wow. Maybe it wasn't so much that he didn't know, he didn't remember. Maybe he didn't remember, but the, even, even as Jehovah, there's still things he had never experienced, right? He experienced life as, as a human. Is there anywhere in the scriptures that talks about Jesus learning? Learning something he didn't know? Okay, there it is. Okay, let's, let's, uh, where did I put it? Where did I put it? Uh, it's in Hebrews 5. You, somebody's already been looking, huh? Hebrews 5, where did I put it? I put it. Yeah, the other way. Did I, go, did I see it? Did I have it? Yeah, you have it. Keep going. One, there it yeah. is. Oh, there it is. I had it off the side here. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to hop over to Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. Okay, here we are. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears, that he was able to save him from death and was heard in and he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. Does that sound familiar to us? Though we are children of God, we learn obedience, not because we were supposed to suffer, but because we do, because we sacrifice. Okay? And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto those that obey him. He learned. He was learning. Yeah. There's one at the cross and at the, in the garden. Is there, is there a possibility here? Absolutely. Is there a possibility here that it, there's a different... Oh, there's no other way. Yeah. He asked the question. He got his... Answer. Oh, there's a possibility. And he submitted. Can, can you imagine... Um, imagine that the angel comes to comfort him. You know, when he's in the middle of that suffering in Gethsemane. <laughs> and the angel probably goes... Yeah, no. <laughs> the, 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 what, what's about to happen tomorrow is, is the plan. An example for me is his learning about human nature was of the situation around the rising of Lazarus from the dead. Yes. Upset Mary and Martha was. Yeah. He went, it was not only weeping because he was sad, I felt, anyway. I thought he was weeping because they didn't fully understand what he had taught them. Yeah, there's something, I, I've thought about that too, Roz, where, where Jesus weeping, and, and, and we kind of talked about it, that, that if Jesus is just going down to, to resurrect Lazarus, you know, you could see him, go, they're weeping, and he goes, don't worry, I got this. Oh, you're going to love what I'm about to do. This is really cool, you know? I know you're sad, but you won't be sad in just a minute. That's not what he's doing. He, he sees their pain. And again, I have some questions. One of my own little speculations is, I don't know when he showed up there 
what, if he knew exactly what he was going to do. He gives some intimations to the apostles that he's maybe going to go do that. We've got to go down to where Lazarus is. We've got to get there. But he may not have known exactly, and, and so this was, this was new to him. And he's going to grow, yeah. Just think what it would be like if you were eight years old and you had all the knowledge and wisdom that you would need if you had one. Yeah. It would be... Too much, too much. So, so it makes more sense that he didn't know. And that he had to learn line upon line, okay, because he was learning. And he would know the joy of learning. And also, the, th think about the times that, that Jesus tried to make a table and it fell apart. <laughs> he failed at making a table. It didn't turn, it didn't turn out well. Or he failed at, re he read the wrong thing. Or he didn't obey his mom, maybe for a little while, okay? He learned all of those kind of things. Yeah. So the other example is kind of simple. It's when he, the woman touches the hem of his garment and is healed. And There's he one. Stops. He doesn't know, does he? He feels a change and he asks the question, who touched me? Where'd it go? Yeah. I, I, felt, I felt virtue pour out of me. Who did that? His apostles didn't have the answer. <laughs> answer was touched, oh, duh, we're in the middle of the streets. <laughs> Gave him the answer. Yeah. Is our opportunity in our lives? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 think about those times though. So so our being contrite and teachable means that that we come into situations and we assume that we don't know. There's nothing worse than assuming we know exactly what this scripture means or this thing is supposed to happen in the gospel and we're not listening to anybody else because we know dang it and this is the definitive answer. As opposed to, well, maybe there's another way to look at this. Yes, lady in the back. Uh, we're told in the scriptures, I'm going back to Lazarus, okay? Okay. We're told in the scriptures, and I wish I knew where, maybe somebody will know. I'm sure they will. We are supposed to live together in love so that when someone um, dies, that we weep. Yeah. Because we live together in love. Okay, and so when Jesus is going down, to see about Lazarus and his death, and he's weeping. Yeah. And people look at him and say, "Look how much he loves him." Yeah. And I know that with the time period that he lived in, that people were, uh, you know, dying all the time. Um, but could it have been that this was the first time that Jesus had? Who's that close? Other than maybe his dad. Yeah. Maybe it surprised him at how much he was hurting, how much that, that pain from that kind of close association. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Bishop. I just kind of figured that in that situation, I think the Savior knew what he wanted to do. Yeah. I think he had two questions that were important. One, what did the Father want him to do? Mm. And number two, Would the Father want me to do that? Number two, would the people be prepared to receive what I would like to do? How would they handle it if I'm going to do this? He, he told us on some occasions that he had to withhold things because the people weren't Right, because they weren't ready for that. That's a good question. Yeah, I want to do this. Am I going to be allowed to do this? Might have been another question. It's a good point. Yeah. The word contrite means bruised. Oh, I like I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what it means. Inside. Contrite is bruised, huh? 
You know, Christ uh, was perfect in his wisdom and all that kind of stuff, but he, our religion is experiential religion, and, uh, and we have to have experiences that put us into a place where we can feel and see and understand the things somewhat that God does. And our experience is battering it. Think, th think about how much our learning, if we're teachable and we're learning, how much of our learning is bruising. Yeah. Boy, I, I love that image a lot. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> okay, so let, let, let's get, we're gonna go back out of Hebrews 5, back over to 3 Nephi 11, okay? Now, kind of complex when you think how hard it would be to bruise a spirit. <laughs> yeah. No blood flowing. But we've got to bruise. Uh, we could find, my brain says that there are some places that almost talks about a bruising of spirit. Uh, that we have a wounded spirit. Uh, wounded, right? Yeah. And, and grieving is a woundedness of spirit, as I, as I think about it. Yeah, wow. Okay. You're going to hijack this whole lesson, you know that? <laughs> In a good way, right? Okay. Now. So now remember what Nephi's what time frame he's looking at. He he's looking at this period from Jesus' birth to his death. And that, so so keep yourself in this time frame. But that but there's a question that I've got here cuz he's going to say uh, 28, so I saw the great Jehovah, the Lamb of God, uh, and the multitudes were gathered together to hear him, and I beheld that they cast him out from among them. I was trying to think in the Gospels if I remember that where the Samaritans or somebody was casting him out, and I don't... Oh, that, that, Nazareth, absolutely. That, yes, I didn't think about that. Luke 4, right after he spoke, and he's at the top near the rock quarry. You're, yeah, you're right, there's one. Okay. I beheld that they cast him out from among the people he grew up with. That would make that even more poignant, which would be a bruising of spirit. By the way, I also think that's, the, that's a good point, because I think that's the moment when Mary moves out. I think when, jo when Jesus moves his operation from Nazareth down to Capernaum, and we don't. We think Joseph is gone by then. I think, and they they then have a house in Capernaum, and they leave Nazareth and really don't go back. So he, he was cast out of where he grew up. So great point. Uh, okay, he sees twelve, uh, and then look at thirty. Came to pass the angel saw, and I looked, and I beheld the heavens open again, and I saw angels descending out among the children of men, and he did minister unto them. Now. We do have that moment in the scriptures. Where is it? Third Nephi 14, right? But I don't remember that in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that if there was a moment where angels were seen descending out and blessing stuff like that, that we don't have that recorded in the Gospels. So there's a good chance that he might have seen a flash to his ministry here. Yeah. That would, that would be one point, which almost gives the children of men could have been the apostles on, on that mountain, but also could have been similar to what he did. Because remember, Jesus' question to the Nephites was, I, you guys want to see what I did there? 
And then we get this experience of the angels coming down. You almost get a sense that it might have occurred, but we don't have it recorded. What about the day of Pentecost? Pentecost would be really close to that, wouldn't it? Tongues of fire and stuff like that. I, I saw the angels spake unto me, and I saw angels descending everything, and 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 actually the possibility of it being third Nephi, also this also happened then, right? That the multitudes were he's going among them. They're sick. They're afflicted. They're uh, I mean this is what this is what God among us does. He heals. He heals. Um, and and the thing that I love about this is actually something that that I heard mentioned uh, yesterday uh, in a meeting uh, without diverting too much. I'm going to hop over for just a second to 3 Nephi 17. Look at verse 10. Uh, when, when, when Jesus is ministering to anybody that's afflicted, he, he, I mean, it's the same thing, right? Which makes me think, I think Nephi has seen his own people being ministered to. In his dream, uh, he sees the sick and afflicted, the lame. The same words are all there, right? Blind, dumb, afflicted in any manner. And then listen to this. And what a what a very cool thing this is. If you think about our any gathering of saints, and they did all, both they who had been healed and those who were whole, did bow down together. Isn't that a great description of maybe a, just a, a sacrament meeting or a meeting of saints? Those who, in other words, those who had been healed and those that maybe didn't, weren't needing as much healing, they're together. They're the same group. It isn't like we say, well, those that were whole and never needed a healing, you guys are over here. And those that needed to be healed, you're over here. He just says, no, those that were, had been healed and those that were whole bowed down at his feet and did worship him together. I think that's just a, a beautiful image that in our mix we have, we have people that uh, have been through a lot and maybe people who have been through stuff but maybe not as much and we worship together. It's just a beautiful image. Yeah. I think that ideally the gratitude can be equal whether you're the one healed or someone you love is healed. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, f and, and our gratitude comes out of that um, uh, that whole experience. So, all right. So I'm going to hop back to 1 Nephi 11. Okay. Thirty-two. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, I looked and beheld the Lamb of God, and he was taken by the people, yea, the everlasting God was judged. And again, 1837, Joseph adds the son. But that originally said, and I just think it has more import if you, if you hear this. The Lamb of God was taken by the people. The everlasting God was judged. <laughs> just the irony of that. And I saw, and I bear record. Okay? And then 33. Should we have any doubt, we love in, our, in the church that, that we, we have tended to focus, Christianity tends to focus on the cross. We have tended to focus more away from the cross and more in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our, our tradition has focused more on Gethsemane. 
The Book of Mormon is telling you where the thing ultimately happened. We tend to say it happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. It began there, and, and he sweat drops of blood there. But where, where does it ultimately culminate? Book of Mormon tells you. That's why I think there's a real place in our church for the cross. And where Jacob is going to say, look upon his death. So this God, talk about the condescension of God. He was lifted up on the cross and slain for the sins of the world. He was the Lamb. That makes him the Lamb of God. Okay. Now, in the time that we have remaining, now, Brother Colton, it's your time, <laughs> that, that condescension has two interesting sides to it, right? Condescension meaning descending. Um, and by the way, I got a... Anybody ever been to Tulum? Okay. If you haven't been to Tulum, it's always an interesting temple to go by, and the LDS guys are more than happy to show it to you. Okay, that this particular temple has a tripart God, the great God, uh, is it Kuklukan, I think, here, and then there's a second God, and then there's a God without a body, over here. It's this God right there. It's close up. This is the descending God. <laughs> he's the God was coming from up here, and he's descending down, so he's upside down. <laughs> but he's he's the descending God. Okay. And he, he's right there. Okay. So they had an understanding. Uh, when they built that of the descending God. Okay? All right. Now, just a, re a little bit of a reminder here. Um, for all of the, when we look at the great and spacious building, we can have whatever interpretation, and it works for us, symbol, the, the great and spacious building for us Today, 2022, it symbolizes what? The world and the universities, the ivory towers, right? The, the wisdom of the world, all those things that, yeah, and all that works. It's all true, okay? But for a sixth century Jew, there's an interesting thing here that Hugh Nibley was pretty clear and he can, and he could demonstrate that what Lehi saw specifically, what was the great and spacious building? That Roman citadel that you showed us last. That's coming for Lehi in the sixth century. What's he looking at? Solomon's temple. It's Solomon's temple that Hugh Nibley says is a temple gone dark. It's filled with people that are throw, that they're casting Lehi out, right? They're trying to stone him. It's 
full of Deuteronomists that believe that the temple is everything, and that they're the ones in fine twined linen. The, the great and spacious building to Lehi would have been the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. And then it is destroyed within uh, about 12 years of them leaving in 587. Um, and so he's watching Solomon's temple, but that's, that's the great and spacious building. Okay, now Nephi has also seen a, but he's seen a temple that exists at the time of Christ. What temple is Nephi seeing that's different from Lehi's? Herod's temple. Okay, this is Herod's temple most likely he's seen. It wouldn't have been a temple he'd ever seen, but he's watching these scenes in Jesus' life. So he's actually seen, maybe not quite as elaborate, but a much larger temple of Herod than the original uh, Solomon temple. Much bigger. And it has the citadel. It has that, the uh, Antonio Fortress on that uh, northwest corner where people really could hurl down abuse and scoff and stuff like that. But worse than that is the, the, the Sadducees' homes. Um, if you get under the, the, the city of David and the temple complex that's here, the Sadducees' homes that, were, that, that ran and operated the temple, their homes were higher on the hill to the side looking across and down at the temple complex right there. Okay. And they also had fine twine linen, and they were the ones that were doing some specific things. Um, and, and so, what, what was it that they were doing? Well, let me point out two last things here. Um, my, in the book of Micah, th that goes back to Lehi's time, talks about what the priests were doing in that great and spacious building, that temple, that was so abhorrent to the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to hop over to Micah 3, 8. Yes. Okay, love this. Okay, you want to talk about specific? Here's what it is that caused the, that uh, drove the Lord nuts at the time of the Babylonians and partly resulted in their being destroyed. Verse 9, hear this I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and the princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They're perverting equity, meaning what? They're being unfair to the poor. You, yeah, yeah the, it's, not, it's not equal. Abhor uh, judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And I think this was the King James, this King James version. I, th I think they were, they love the, the symbolic wordplay of this. They are perverting equity and they're filling Jerusalem with iniquity. <laughs> you get this, these, this poetic way that King James version does well. Okay. Look at what, now look at what they do. 11. The heads thereof, those in charge of the temple, those in charge of Judaism at the time, those in the king's court, 
the heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire. If you're going to pay me, I'll tell you what you want to hear. Okay? And the prophets thereof divine for money. What does that mean? Fortune. Kind of a fortune telling. If you pay me, I'll tell you your future. But you'll kind of get the future you like depending on how much you pay me. <laughs> okay? Divine for money. Uh, uh, yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, but here's what they were saying, and they were definitely saying this to Lehi. Because you hear it out of the words, out of the mouth of Laman and Lemuel. They lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord with us? Aren't we great? None evil can come upon us. Because we're the chosen covenant people. You can't take us down. No matter what we're doing, it's okay because we are blessed. You know, look at this. Look at our beautiful temple. This temple can never be destroyed. Laman and Lemuel are going, oh, I just can't believe that would happen. Kind of a prosperity gospel. Yeah. God wants you to be rich. And the richer you are, the more blessed you are. And we never go there in our church. <laughs> Who's the most blessed in the war? They're probably the richest people. <laughs> we're poor, therefore we're not as blessed. Ah, okay. Is not the Lord among us? No evil can come upon us. Then finally, okay, the, re the, the response for that, therefore shall Z Zion for your sake shall be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps. And the mountain of the house, the temple, the great and spacious building, and great shall be the fall thereof as the high places of the forest. And it, and it was. One of the interesting things about going uh, through Jerusalem is that many of those places where the rocks fell are still there. It's destroyed and they're still there. And some are from the time of Herod. And some are from older than that. Okay, You can see where it, it was plowed under. So, okay. So, you tripped on those steps. Yeah, you did. Well, we had somebody twist their ankle on one of those steps on the last trip. Yes. Okay. And see, that's what he's saying in 36, and it came to pass. And, and so ne what Nephi is watching literally, I believe, because he's seeing all these scenes from the Savior's time, and he's going to say, and it came to pass that I saw and bear record, the great and spacious building was the pride of that world, and it fell, and the fall thereof was exceedingly great. And that certainly happens in AD 68 to, to 70. Okay? But... I, I want to kind of finish with this. Uh, okay, so who's in this building then and symbolically now? The multitude of the earth was gathered together, and I beheld they were in a great and spacious building, like unto the, like unto the building my father saw, but different. He, he saw a different temple. And the angel of the Lord spake unto me, saying, Behold the world 
and the wisdom thereof. And then this interesting phrase. Behold, the house of Israel hath gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Where's, where's the tribes of Israel? Because technically, if you're going to, I mean, this is the time of Jesus, you're going to say, then the Jews or Judah fought. Where's, where's most of the tribes of Israel? They're, they're in the north countries, right? They're north. They got scattered. The Syrians hauled them off. By the way, do you know where they went? R Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. That's where they are. Those tribes are up there. Don't want to spook you, but that's where they are. We know because we've done the, the patriarchal blessings of those tribes uh, have been done, and that's where they are. Okay. Um, Behold, the house of Israel hath gathered together, but he's talking about a specific time, hath gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Okay, so coming out of that building are going to be people that were specifically fighting, and this is the condescension of man, the scoffing. The way we see condescension is the condescension, right? That we're going to condescend, and they're condescending to the, to the, the apostles. Okay? So there's two things that happen. One is people are condescending because they want to establish their superiority. Yes. And the That's right. Is somebody who truly is in a position of greater power and is actually trying to help and serve somebody who needs to let go. A result that I have some abilities and opportunities you don't have. So, in the one case, if you feel that somebody prideful and arrogant and trying to demean you, then that's the negative condescending. <laughs> and if you recognize that it's somebody who is all powerful and is trying to lift you up, that's the positive condescending. I love it. And that's why I say there is an interesting, this word condescending goes both ways on here. And you got to see both. And that's why there's an interesting juxtaposition of a God that, that comes down among us and is sacrificed for us. And then people that raise themselves up in a high building and they refuse to come down, but they are brought down. And great is the fall thereof because of their pride and because they were putting down the less fortunate that they could have helped but didn't. Okay? So uh, the, yeah. So the condescension of God is coming down to bring people up. The condescension of man is going up. Jesus even said, I was lifted up, right? Taking the condescension of man would be lifting yourself up higher than other people to bring other Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've quoted, and I've, I've quoted St. Augustine before, and I, I guess I should quit beating up on him, but part of our enjoyment of being in heaven is the joy of watching those suffer in hell. That's <laughs> how so we know where we are. We got the big mansion, they got the little hovel in heaven, you know. And sometimes the other side of that says, and the poor will inherit the earth. So, the poor will have the big mansions and the rich will have the little ones. Somebody's got to be up and somebody's got to be down. If, you, if you're in Utah, it's how far can you get up the side of the mountain with your house? <laughs> the higher the house, the cooler you are. And I'm up on top of the point of the mountain. I won. Nobody can be above me. No, I won't go there. Yes? I said, is that the Sadducees on the bench above the temples of learning in Provo? <laughs> I'm not even going there. 
<laughs> I won't go there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so finally, I would just say a good example of this. Were they fighting against the, the uh, apostles of the Lamb? Yeah, they were. Think, think uh, the difference between uh, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was doing what? He got his commission from the Sadducees in the great and spacious building, and then he did what? Persecuted the, the, the apostles, tracked them down. Okay. Then he becomes Paul the Apostle. Now he goes off all over the Mediterranean. And at the end of that, he says, he would always stop where? First place he'd go, he gets into town, Ephesus, Corinth, Athens. Where's the first place? Rome. Where's the first place Paul stops? Synagogue. synagogue. I'm going to go talk to the synagogue people. And then he says at the end of that, I was beaten with a rod four times. <laughs> Twice I was dead, <laughs> had to be raised, you know, after the Thessalonica. I was be they was always beaten with the rod, right? Uh, because he was, and so they were, and they were being chased all over. His death results in it from a group of Jews that are chasing him around, and he gets to Jerusalem, and they set him up uh, in something that will result in him being hauled off to Rome. But that came from the house of Israel persecuting whether it was in whether it was in Jerusalem or whether that was far off because we know half the disciples the apostles went north Matthew and uh, and uh, some of those we know from their records that they went into the north countries and were persecuted there and were killed so the house of Israel is actually the correct term because all the house of Israel did their thing too. Okay. All right. Whew. That's a lot. That's end of third Nephi eleven. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Think how many times we just blown right through third Nephi eleven. This is interesting stuff, Nick. And I'm trying to get through three chapters tonight, so I'll be hustling along here. And it's just rich and it's deep. And again, there are times to read the Book of Mormon quickly because you're trying to get it done before Christmas and there's a certain amount of spirit that you're going to get from reading quickly and I, do it. But then there are times that you should just slow way down and if you get in your scripture study, if you get three verses in, count yourself blessed because it's deep and it's rich and symbolically it's powerful. Whew. Okay, final comments on any of this. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. When we were talking about the house on the hill, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember, and I don't know why it struck me, but President Hinckley was talking about, he just mentioned President Faust, and he says, we were talking the other day, and President Faust has paid off his home. And it was just a modest home in Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah. And he, he spent a moment on that, and he's paid it off. He, now he can just, doesn't have to worry about a mortgage and so forth. In other words, he wasn't, trying he wasn't trying to get up to. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. No. That was in a general conference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bishop, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it's going through that, that verse 30 on that concept of the Savior heals, which what he does, probably the highlight of the chapter for me. Yeah. Because if, I, if we can get that concept down, the Savior heals, he heals then, he heals now. Yeah. If we really believe it and accept it, that has a huge impact on what we will do. Yeah, and the fun thing is then we get to sit and worship together with those that have been healed and we're all one 
you know. And, and that's the, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, that's what Paul is trying to say. The eye can't say to the leg, I, I don't need you. <laughs> or the arm can't say to the leg, I, I have no need of you. The, the, the least comely have a greater comeliness, is what King James says. The, the, those that have, have, that have been healed have a greater beauty. Yeah. When we think about the healing, it automatically goes back to the broken heart. and The contrite spirit. Yeah, and that's, to me, that's the lesson of all of this, is getting ourselves to that contriteness, that teachability that says we're going to take care of those that need to be taken care of. So, anyway, yeah. Yeah, Yes, yes. It comes that, that sheddeth forth in the hearts of men, right? Yeah. Boy, Jerry, I think that that's right on. As opposed to maybe Lucifer, son of the morning, who had a different motivation to do some similar things, but it wasn't going to be similar because he wasn't willing to sacrifice. So, uh, thank you. I bear you my testimony that this, like I said, this is, the Book of Mormon is just so rich and so accurate. And what a, what a shock that uh, Joseph Smith just made the whole thing up. <laughs> How would he? There's no way. How intricate. Yeah. And wow. Okay. Coming from a farm boy that's just sitting there dictating from a hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, bear my testimony that the Lord desires us to be filled with love and to be filled with a contriteness that enables us to then... Uh, to do the things that he asks us to do. And I, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Kind Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity.